Hello and welcome to Sustain. It's a podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Well, we both kind of wore orange. That's cool. Really excited to have our guest on today. Of course, I'm here at State of the Open 23, hopefully one of the first of many of those conferences, talking about all things open within the UK. Now, there's been a sustained track upstairs for the past two days. This is nearing the end of the conference now, where we've talked about all sorts of really cool, interesting things like financial stability, resilience, burnout, you know, all the normal sustained awesome topics. And when I say we, I mean other people. I've been down here in this podcast room locked away like a gremlin in a closet. But every now and then some people wander down. And so today we have a new person who I haven't met before. So this is very exciting for me. Derek Kozel. Derek, how are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. Awesome. And so Derek saw the sign-up sheet that there was a podcast and figured, let's figure it out. So Derek, you are the president of Canoe Radio. Doing what at Canoe Radio? President. President. Yep. Tell me what it is. So Canoe Radio is a 22-year-old community-developed open source project, which is a toolkit for building radio applications, whether that's radar, uh, developing the next generation of Bluetooth. Cool. Uh, it's amazing how much we take for granted in terms of wireless communications and wireless yeah. technologies. Yeah. And it blows people's minds sometimes to realize that, oh, those badges they've been tapping on readers and stuff like that, it's all radio. Okay, so I'm wearing an Aura ring right now. It tracks my like blood pulse and stuff. And it connects with my phone using Bluetooth, which apparently is not a separate band. It's just a radio band, which means there's no more danger to me than, say, being near a radio tower. Absolutely. That's, That's good to know. Is there any proven danger from being near radio waves? The biggest one is heating. Huh. If you think of a microwave oven in your home. Yeah, it don't stand. Yeah. It's a 2.4 gigahertz high power radio, just yeah. the same as Wi-Fi, except literally millions of times more powerful. Interesting. Wi-Fi is also radio. Wi-Fi is also radio. Mine is being blown. Oh my God. Okay, cool. I, for some reason, I mean, obviously it's in the electromagnetic spectrum, but I just didn't think that like radio was a term that defines it. What does radio mean? Radio is one of those vague terms. Yeah. Uh, and okay. so we're dealing with the electromagnetic spectrum. Got it. So we have one of these fundamental forces of the universe and yeah, power Wait. going up and down. Cool. And the rate at which it goes up and down is its frequency. So okay. when we talk about 2.4 gigahertz, yep. we have an electromagnetic wave that's bouncing around and oscillating 2.4 billion times per second. This is a very fascinating conversation. <laughs> now, when I said radio, what it means, and you said, well, we do all sorts of stuff. We do how to set up radio, how to set up Bluetooth, ham radios, I'm assuming. Yeah, absolutely. Super cool. And you said you're the president. That means there's a structure. How large is the community? The community is really hard to gauge, cool. but it's probably about a uh, hundred unique contributors per year, technical code contributions. On GitHub. On GitHub uh, yep. is our main interface. We have a self-hosted Git as well. Yep. And we have probably another 15, 20 people who contribute non-code contributions Love them. each year. Invaluable. Yeah, you have designers? We have some designers coming in and out. I actually just had lunch with somebody who does user experience. I want to talk to them on my other podcast, the Sandy Open Source Design, which I feel like not enough people know about really cool podcasts about open source and design. Well, so I, I think this is where we might be looping all in the same community. Bernard Tires. Oh, okay. Yeah, cool. Sweet. Great. Yeah. In that case, <laughs> never mind. So when I said earlier that you have a structure for your community, it's cool to know that you have those many contributors, users, hard to gauge. That's fine. But the president of a 22-year-old thing means that for the last 21 years, you figured it out enough. 
right? To keep going. How has that happened? In the best tradition of open source, benevolent dictator for life. Oh, no. Um, Is it you? No, no. Okay. Thankfully. You seem pretty young. So it'd be weird if you were like eight when that started. So, well, you know, child prodigy, right? No. Thankfully, it turns out that BDFLs are often not for L. They're just dictators, well, beneficent dictators. And so the project leadership has been handed over a bunch of different times. And when the final handover was made three years ago, the previous person, Ben Hilburn, said, look, the project's grown. It's really healthy. To grow further, it's probably going to need more leaders. And so instead of me just nominating the next person to be the next project lead, why don't we create a set of rules, governance, and actually put in some structure this time? And so we have a general assembly. Right now, it's about 13, 14 people who are effectively a technical steering committee, although it covers a lot of things that aren't just the technical side. So it's really the project steering committee. And then we'd love to just keep it at that. But there is a need at times for there to be someone to be the figurehead of the project or to make purely boring administrative decisions. So we have a board of directors of three people. And out of that, one of them gets thrown under the bus as president. Happens. Sorry. Uh, Bus is light. At times. At times. Interesting. Now, you said the word beneficent, just looked up the word benevolent, well-meaning versus well-doing. Good to know. Funding. How does that work? Funding's a tricky one. So the project started out with a grant, and it was actually as part of providing evidence to a court case, which is good fun. Okay, back up. What? So this is not my story, so I may get some details wrong, but in the United States, there was a new standard coming into effect about airplane tracking be able to say, where are airplanes at the moment so they don't collide? All good stuff. But I believe the argument that was made by the government was nobody's ever going to be able to spoof this and nobody's ever going to be able to track and receive this because we're going to build the hardware and we'll be the only people. So it's totally secure. That's not okay. Oh, no. It's not how it works. (laughs) And so a gentleman named John Gilmore decided, okay, I'm going to take this to court. I'm going to prove that this is, in fact readily decodable by anyone with a bit of technical understanding. And so he hired a programmer with some initial money to create a demonstration. So did Gilmore win? I believe he proved his case. And I don't know that it changed much, but I think it proved the point. And that initial code base and the programmer who started that, who was doing that work, ended up building into the Gnu-Rio project. Okay. You talked about your governance structure. You talked about the amount of fans. How much budget do you have a year? How much does that work? Like, where do you get your funding sources? So now, for many years, the better part of those 22 years, our primary and really only source of funding was income from our annual conference, which has now gone something like 13 times. What happened? COVID moved online during 2020. 2021, we ran hybrid, 100 person in person and 2,300 online. Wow. That was good fun. That happens. Um, yeah. Oh, it was, a, it was an experience. Mostly a positive one. But I... Did you have a radio tune-in session? Could people like call in like, hello, this is HR54 calling in from Tuvalu? We've done bits and pieces of that in the past. Cool. We'll be broadcasting out of the conference, but we haven't done inbound. We should think about that. Yeah, that'd be great. And then this most recent year, I fully backed to in-person 
logistically running workshops and stuff hybrid is really challenging and something that you need resources for and it's just out of scope. But we're still live streaming. That was the big jump we made. So all the talks are live streamed. So when I think of radio and I think of ham radio, I think of the stereotypical person who would be confused for a burger, old white dude. Tell me about how you work to ensure inclusion and diversity in new radio. It's something that is still a work in progress, 100%. How do you work towards that? So putting in the governance structure was our first chance to put in formal accountability. And so making it really clear how you can become a lead in the project. And as part of this process, we put in a formal expanded code of conduct. We had a really small one, which was literally on the scale of please be nice to each other. And if not, we'll get upset. So we haven't had significant problems more than once or twice. And so thankfully, that had been not the worst thing to have. But the one or two that we had were plenty of evidence to say that we should improve things. We now you know, have largely taken on a much more expansive code of conduct and put in place a committee, gotten the committee some training. So that helps a bit in making the space a bit safer. But that certainly doesn't mean that you actually have anybody coming into that space. It's definitely a community where the people who show up at the conference and the people who are active in contributing code are not a diverse, particularly diverse group. And it's honestly something that we don't have good answers for and need to find more resources to improve on. We've run now some meetups during the conference specifically for women working in these areas. That feels like a really low bar, but at least it was a bar that we're now above. And we've been offered a grant, which we'll definitely be accepting this year to provide discounted tickets and registration for people with diverse backgrounds. Yeah, it's tough. We had uh, two women on the podcast earlier who run Women in Computer Science at Cambridge, and they were talking about how difficult it is just in general, it's just not a lot of numbers and it's hard to be welcoming. So that's great that you're working on that. That is awesome. You'd asked about funding and we actually didn't get to present day. So we do get income from the conference and that puts us kind of in the couple tens of thousands of dollars per year range, which is a really interestingly challenging amount to be in because we really can't hire people with that. No, you can get very specific things addressed. I want a word for that. Like it's not sticker funds and it's not hiring funds. It's just contracting funds, contracting funds, or, uh, or bounty funds yeah. or, or travel scholarship funds. Yes. And it's the type of money that vanishes very quickly. If you start spending it on things that really matter, you can't do everything. Not that you ever can, but as soon as you do one website up, revamp or yep. hire on one person to do some documentation update, 25% of the money's gone. So figuring out how to spend the money effectively is an ongoing challenge. We've got some small grants going on where we'll say, nominate an idea that you think would use $2,000, $5,000. And that can be things like small documentation improvements or building new tutorials on this specific issue, putting in a preferences menu. You know, What's your pain point? that we can knock down right here. I know you've been upstairs with the sustained sessions. Tell me about what you thought. The one that I spent the most time in, we worked as a workshop. And it 
ended up being me talking about the governance changes that we've made cool. I, and how I both that was really simple and an unguided process. There mm-hmm. wasn't a lot of information that felt super applicable for the size of project that we are. Because you can definitely look at what does a single maintainer project do? And then you're really thinking about secession planning, who the next person will be, what is there even thought of, does anyone else have right access to this repository or would it just be a hard fork and everyone just has to know, should something happen? And then you have something like the Rust Foundation, which seems some great talks about it. And there you're like, okay, you have an elect, you have a CEO, you have staff, you have employees, you massively need a real governance structure and, yeah. and something there because you have a large organization. What do you do when it's really 13, 14 active people, 25 kind of on a weekly basis who are contributing and working all the time? How much structure do you need that will be useful without being encumbering? So we ended up copying a lot from the KDE sure. organization to, because they have a nice, pretty brief, abbreviated, incorporated structure in Germany. And we, we largely copied, pasted, and adapted that in, in the best traditions of open source. And that's ended up being lightweight, just to find some voting and pieces like that. But I think we had a long conversation about that and how there's often a lack of engagement in open source projects around governance. Because if it's been working for 19 years without a governance structure, why yeah. change it now? And of course, the answer is the project's growing, things are changing. We live in a different world today and a different societal understanding today than we did 20 years ago. It's not a bad thing. It's just a different thing. It's time for the project to remain continually updated, just like we do the code base. You talked about growth. What is GNU Radio and you doing at State of Open? How is this helping? So for me, State of Open has been really interesting because it is a non-code conference. You go to so many things, like usually we go to Fostum and have a free software radio track. And that's really a technical event where you're talking about code. This conference has really been a technical conference in a lot of ways, talking about the non-code sides, how to work with companies. We know that there are large industrial users of Guinea Radio who make a lot of revenue using Guinea Radio as part of their large, expansive tool set to deliver their services and products. And a very small amount of money from each of those people would go a very long way to making projects safer in the technical sense, you know, improving memory safety, making it more reliable and resilient, more testing, continuous integration that actually drops out nightly builds. None of this is mysterious. But if you come from a background that is purely as a software developer, or in my case, electrical engineer, sorry. How do you then go and approach a large company and explain to them, oh, we'd like to establish an annual contract with you where we are going to license you something you already have access to for free. We are not capable of providing support services because we don't have any staff. But in return, a year or two from now, you're going to get much more reliable builds. All of this niceness that we know you can have with a bit of funding. Did you find any answers for that? No new answers. But some better details on on things. I really liked the terminology of curation. And I think that's something that might be useful in phrasing and how we approach with companies saying, look, 
you have an as-is provided code base here. That's not going to change. Would you like the thing that we provide as-is to have a tighter guarantee behind it? And guarantee is the wrong word because it's still provided as-is. But mm. would you like to just have some influence on improving yeah, 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 what, yeah. what we're handing over the wall? And handing over the wall is one of the problems. So how do we establish a two-way relationship? How do we make this a collaborative process that a company can engage with? And some of that's timing. Somebody reports an issue and it's two weeks before it gets responded to. That's broken on an industry time scale. You need a faster response. To have a faster response, we're going to have people able to commit more time to that. Yeah. That probably means supporting them. That makes sense. That sounds great. I really like that. Is there any chance you're going to publicly share your findings anywhere? Is anywhere where you talk about what you learn? I've been keeping notes and I'll certainly be writing that up. We have a wiki, which tends to end up with the course notes. And I don't think there'll be a direct blog post on our website about this conference specifically, yep. but we have monthly project updates cool. and People listening to this or having attended the conference will probably see influences mentioned in some of those coming updates. Sweet. That's really exciting. Actually, we are coming up on time. So what is your website? GNURadio.org. G-N-U-Radio.org. That's the one. Excellent. And where can people find out more about you, Dirk? For me, I'm on Mastodon and Twitter. And also I have my own website. So DerekKozel.com is probably the launch place to go to. K-O-Z-E-L. Thank you so much. Sorry, your badge, you took it off with the jingles too much and then I just can't remember anything. This is right. super cool. Yeah, thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate you just dropping in. This is super awesome. What a cool project. Thanks. Hello and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Am I warm today? I think the weather's actually pretty good here in London. It's pretty nice. It's, it's kind of sunny. I'm at State of Open 2023, which is the first conference of its type, looking at all the open things in the UK. It's very exciting. We have a sustained track here. And today on this podcast session that I'm running in a small little room next to a stage, which is currently talking by Jimmy Wales. Hi, Jim. Stop emailing me. We're going to be talking with Abigail. Abigail Kabunak Mays. I hope I pronounced that correct. That was perfect. Perfect. Excellent. You think I should have known by now? We've been working together for a long time. Abigail is, of course, one of the other Sustain organizers currently working at GitHub. Have you been on a podcast before? Yeah. Okay, good. Excellent. I was yeah. so. <laughs> Great. I never know. I just, just done too many podcasts. Why don't you tell me about your recent journey? Because you were also just at FOSDEM. How was that? Oh, it was great. That was my first FOSDEM. And it was a little chaotic, yeah. and it does remind me a lot of the open source community. Yep. Remind me of MozFest a little bit. Cool. Just the chaos and like people doing what they want. <laughs> but it was good. I really enjoyed it. I'm a little tired. So FOSDAM is a large conference that happens in Belgium every year. 3,000 people or something. I heard 8,000. 8,000. Who knows? There's no get, registration. Did you get to see any of the tracks you wanted to see? I saw two talks, which cool. was great. Good. And more than I was expecting. Excellent. So, what was your main takeaway? I think being there with the community was really nice. And one thing we heard at the GitHub social, one of the maintainers came up and was like, you know, I always knew GitHub was like a part of open source, like you make the platform, but I didn't know that you were part of the community. And he really felt like we were part of the community. So that felt nice that we're actually like doing something that people feel like we're part of them and we're doing things with them. 
But honestly, a lot of the takeaways I came out of was uh, I should prepare my slides earlier than the day before. <laughs> Very important. It was good. I'm glad that it resonated with people just because I did talk about sustainability in open source. Cool. And I think especially with succession planning, I think that was something people hadn't really thought of as much with sustainability. So I don't know, that was a good takeaway for me from like what I was talking about. But if you're listening to other people, I know it's just so broad. My main takeaway is that open source is huge. It's, it's much bigger than executives all the time. Yeah. The way I framed my talk was like thinking about maintainers as really the important part of the open source ecosystem. They're the people that keep us going. And then just thinking through different lenses of sustaining open source. So I thought through the community part, finances, and then technical. But the community part, I think that's where I really talk about succession planning. So I think that's an interesting lens to look at when you're working with the community to prioritize what you're going to do. Because if you have a very large community with lots of demands to contribute, it's easy to get really burnt out just like saying yes to everyone or just helping everyone get involved. But if you go through it with a lens of succession planning, like who should I be investing in here that could be a leader within my project? It helps you prioritize where to spend your time. So I would go, you were instrumental in helping set up the Moz leaders in yeah. open source program. You've worked on thinking about leadership in open source for many, many years. What's different about this talk versus what you taught about? Like, What's new for you around, think about how to be brutally honest with your contributors and say, you're not valuable enough to invest in. Like, What's new in your thinking here? I'd say not saying you're not valuable enough to invest in. No, obviously a joke. Yeah, I did use open leaders as an example. Cool. So when we're taking on mentees, so the example I put is like the easiest way to think about succession planning in open source project or implement succession planning is when you're choosing who to mentor. Because I think you can have people coming to your projects that like want something from this project and they're really excited about it, but just for their own problems. And it's good to have those people in training, definitely keep them around, but I wouldn't like invest that extra step into them. So I don't think they're there to sit along call and they're not really there for the success of the project. They're yeah. there for their own project. So in open leaders for our selection criteria, we looked at a few things. One was that they were like excited about the mission, really wanted to see more openness around the world yeah. and like more open projects. So we asked questions around like, why open source? Or why do you want to work open? And we want people who were available that actually had time to work on this to yeah. actually contribute. So we asked for 10 hours a week. And then we also asked, we want people that could actually learn from their mentors. So just questions like, how do you like to learn things? Or like, what do you talk about a mentorship relationship you've had before? And I think doing those things and helped us find people who were excited about this work, who could invest time into this bigger mission of like more openness around the world. And they were willing to learn from their mentors. So I think like it really helped because even after the program slowed down, we were able to decentralize it to 10 different programs with Open Leaders X. And a bunch of them are still running today. And they've raised over a million dollars from different funders. This is just things like open life science, okay. open scapes, even things like the Turing Way was like partially inspired by open leaders. But it's like a lot of those lessons and like a lot of this work is still happening, even if it's not being done explicitly by MossFest or Mozilla. Sure. So that's sort of what I was thinking with succession planning. Like if you're running your open source project, find people who want the project, who have the time to contribute. And if they don't have the time or in resources, like can you get that to them? So even if they don't have the skills yet to contribute, yep. like I would add that as another criteria is they needed those skills and yep. you couldn't teach them. But as long as they're willing to learn those skills or learn just how the project works for me, 
I think those are the people you should be investing your time in. So the vast majority of open source projects don't have a choice on the amount of people who are coming in and contributing. I would love for every open source project to be uh, the Harvard admissions team being like, how do we sort between all these amazing candidates? But it's not how it is. Can you tell me a bit about what advice you would give to maintainers to try to surface the traits that they want to be able to use in the selection process and also try to cultivate those traits in people who are just swinging by? How do you show to yeah. your contributors, hey, we're looking for this stuff for the next people who can be involved as maintainers? And I think some projects do have like that criteria listed out yeah. they're looking for, especially if they're looking for like new project leads or certain roles within the project. I think doing that helps even just add that extra commitment for people. Like if they were just coming by, they might not be willing to spend that 10 hours a week. But if you wrote it down and they were like, oh, I could see myself doing this and they see the value of having that role, then it makes them more likely to do that. So documentation. Yeah. So like documenting what you're looking for and making that explicit. Cool. I think that will help you find those people. If you're just waiting passively and see like, does someone come up that will is willing to spend 10 hours a week? It's less likely. And also they won't see the value in it as much. So if you document it and then say like what they'll get out of it too, like you're willing to invest in them, saying like you'll get like mentorship or you get access to these things or we'll give you your commit bit or something like that, then that helps get people to the space or it like helps you find those people that are ready to take on more leadership roles. Cool. It's also kind of a way of envisioning the future you want to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talking about it. Taking a left tag, you mentioned that you should look for people who want to work in open or ask them why they want to work in open. That's looking for a philosophical bent mm-hmm. to a lot of your contributors. Yeah. I'll say that's for like the Google Open Leaders Project. Got it. That was our Thank main you. mission. Okay. Was doing that. So now there's still people doing that. So I'd say it's whatever your project is doing, find people who are excited about that and want to keep it going. It doesn't necessarily have to be open, but if that's part of your project's vision, then yes. Excellent. Yeah. That's it. A lot of open source projects do have a philosophical under- yes. underpinning where they're like, I want to work in the digital commons. I yeah, want to yeah. give back to people. I was really curious about your take on open source as largely an antitrust corporate strategy to enable large corporations to work together mm-hmm. without having to bother with having internal teams and with having a different competitive field. It's very difficult to find 20-somethings who are keen on that. And it's also difficult to find 20-somethings who are like, yeah, we want you to work in open source, but only if it's related to our ultimate business logic. Can you talk a bit about how to hold those two competing viewpoints when you're thinking about new contributors and leadership in an open source project? Yeah, and I'd say for those kinds of projects, you might not need that community sustainability aspect because there's corporations that are willing to hire more maintainers. So you don't have to cultivate that as much. And there is quite a high bar to contributing in those spaces. Like you need a lot of resources. Generally, you need to like get a job contributing there. Yeah, I guess a few people do jump in just without it, but it's a bit different. So that's why in my talk, like I talked about the community side, but also financial and also technical. And like you don't need all three to be sustainable. Depending on what kind of project you are, you probably need like at least one of them. No, that helps. I like the high bar. That's a really good point. So Harry wrote a book recently called Spare. I'm sure you've all seen it on the airport. Oh, that, that which, Harry. Yeah. <laughs> Who's Harry? What, we're talking Harry. about succession planning. Of course, so we're here in London. Why not? Long time listeners know I'm a huge anti-monarchist, but you know, that's fine. What advice would you give to people who want to be involved with open source projects, but don't want to be leaders? They just want to just code and work on stuff. Is I mean, leadership necessary? I don't think leadership's necessary. 
leadership doesn't have to mean running the whole project. It could be smaller parts of leadership. Like if you want to take ownership, I think people are generally interested in like at least a tiny bit of leadership. It's like, oh, I want to own this piece of code or I want to run our meetups or I want to be the person who welcomes folks when they come in. It doesn't have to be like a giant thing. So I would just reframe what you think of as leadership. Yeah, even small things are super important. So recently, in the past year, it's, it's been around nine months now, I think, you took a job at GitHub. Can you tell me about what you do there? So I run our open source maintainer programs. Yeah, I'm working to engage, grow, and advocate for and then the open source community through maintainers. As opposed to what else on GitHub? I mean, isn't that all of GitHub is the people who are maintaining code? What does that mean particularly within that context? Yeah, so this is particularly it's the open source community. So I'm like not like the enterprise code or like got it. Thank the closed source stuff that's in the private GitHub repos. Cool. Yeah, no, that's yeah. fair. Right. <laughs> How are you collecting and working with maintainers? And are there any cool projects that you can give us a hint about? So the maintainer community, it's a private GitHub repo where we're launching some new programming for that. I think you saw some of it. Yep. So cool. yeah, you. so it's more active now. Um, it's been around for a while. It's been a little sleepy, but we've just moved it to a place where we can manage it a bit better and engage a bit better. So I'm really excited to work with this broader maintainer community just to engage them, but also like learn from them. One thing I've learned at GitHub, like looking at the data, if you look at the social activity that's happening on GitHub, which I think is so important for community building, it's 81% of all the social activity on GitHub in 2022 it happened in 1% of repos. 80% happened yeah. in so one Over 80% of the social activity in GitHub yep. is in... 1% of the repos, open source repos. I mean, that makes sense. It does make sense, but that's compared to 60% of code pushes and 5% of contributors. It's a much longer tail graph. So a lot of what I want to be doing with these programs is just, what can we learn from those maintainers of the 1% of repos so that we can help all the communities grow on GitHub? So I'm excited for this maintainer community, this private repo, just to engage the group, but also learn from them. Like, how are they running their projects? What can we do to help them keep doing what they're doing so well? And then can we take those practices and share it out to the rest of the maintainer audience? Have you learned anything from talking to similar community leads at GitLab or Bitbucket or any of the other non-GitHub-based repositories? Yeah, actually, my accountability buddy from Mozilla is now at GitLab. Cool. (laughs) Hello. Yeah, so we talked a bit about that, but it's a small world. And I think we're all friendly. We all care about open source. <laughs> yep. I know we're competitors, but there's so much we can learn from each other. And it's interesting how platforms do shape how people are contributing and how people are interacting. So we've been running this uh, conference here at Stated Open. We have a special track on sustained ones as I'm stuck down here in a basement. Thank you for podcasting. This is important. Oh, it's a real, it's a real struggle. I'm curious, how did you think yesterday went? Because this is the second day now. Yeah, no, I think it's been great. I think we've had some really good conversations. And what I've really enjoyed is that it's not the same conversations we keep having in previous years. Like it's actually evolving and we're getting to next steps. So it's good because I was a little worried that we just have the same conversations all over again. But whenever I met with maintainers, it's often the same things. And then we get to certain depth of like, oh, we need more money or these big questions. But this time we're actually diving into more specifics and more actionable items. So I especially liked yesterday warnings around financial sustainability. And I was in a breakout that was thinking about like, how can corporations be giving more money to open source? 
that they depend on and they profit a lot on. It was a really eye-opening conversation just hearing how even in the past year, just ideas of these corporations have changed how they're handling this. And there's like more willingness to give money to projects directly. Whereas before, I think they thought that, oh, like I'm a Linux Foundation member. Like, isn't that covering my sponsorship for open source? But I think they're realizing that that alone isn't necessarily enough to sustain what they're depending on. Fascinating. I'm glad it's not just the same conversation. It has changed since yeah. the first sustained ages ago. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. So I'm glad that's happening. Thank you for hosting those sessions. Abigail, this is fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. Where can people follow you on the web? I'm Abicabs, A-B-B-Y-C-A-B-S, on Twitter and GitHub. I also am on Mastodon, Abicabs on Hackaderm.io. I love the Hackaderm, yeah. Hackadermic. And... Yeah, Chris Noah gave a talk at Boston cool. about like running Hackaderm and outages. And it was, it was very fascinating. I recommend you take a look. A lot of the open source collections that have been applying to OSC for hosting are actually Mastodon instances and Discord, which is really yeah, interesting crazy. because they're open source communities. Yeah. Well, host them, sure. I mean, you're doing open source stuff. But it's kind of cool to see how that's been working out. And I'm glad that people are moving away from just having a Twitter handle, moving on to other things. Abby, thank you so much. This was excellent. And I hope you have a great continuing rest of the session. Thanks. You too.